The title of today's sermon is Power Over Traditions. It's taken from Matthew 9, verses 10 through 17. Let's begin by sharing a reflection of how good God is to us to speak to us through his word. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time each week where we come together as the body of Christ. We share in song and in prayer and in an exposition of the word of God. Now we ask that you would teach us through your spirit, guide us in our study, help us, Lord, to affect this in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Traditions. We all have them and observe them. Some families are big on traditions, while others, not so much. I think the celebrations of families sort of wax and wane with the life cycle that people go through. When the children are at home, traditions are important, but when they leave, not so much. Health and circumstances also affect the way that we celebrate the big days in our lives. However, religious traditions are in quite another category altogether. Depending on whatever religious background you are from, you will have observed some religious traditions. You might have observed Lent or Maundy Thursday, the Feasts of the Tabernacle, Ramadan, Yom Kippur, or perhaps Advent. I'm not a particularly high on religious traditions, and neither is Lacey family. It hasn't been part of our tradition. But as I read the scriptures, I am oftentimes amazed by how the Jews rejected Jesus despite what they saw in the Old Testament. Why do the Jews today continue to reject Christ? And the answer to that is traditions. There's a Jewish commentator who answers Jewish folks in Israel, and he goes into the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and he asks modern Jews questions that are placed with him in his website. Watch the following clip, if you will. Okay. Jesus Christ Okay, Okay. 
זה לא מדויק היסטורית, אבל הוא נחשב לסדר אמיתי זה פאולוס. מה? פאולוס? לא שמעתי. הוא בעצם מייסד הנצרות האמיתי. אה, הבנתי, אוקיי. עבור איזה פרויקט זה? זה פרויקט שלי. שאני עושה, אני לומד ומלמד קונפליקטים, למה אנחנו אוהבים, ובחו"ל יש הרבה מיתוס על הקונפליקט ועל ישראלים ופלסטינים בכלל, יותר על ישראלים, הרבה יותר, ואז אני אומר לאנשים, תשלח לי שאלות, אני אלך, כל שאלה, אני אלך ל... לרחוב, שאנשים יש... שבוע, אני עובדת בארגון של... אה, אינגוויש? אפילו יותר טוב. אני עובד But they were living in Israel for many years or something like that. And they asked me if I'm a believer. Mm-hmm. And I thought for a minute and I said, I'm a Jew. They stopped asking me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think there's an automatic assumption that they can't quite figure out why we don't believe in Jesus. Yeah. If, we're believe, yeah. if we believe yeah. right, right. at all. So, well, okay, can you maybe explain in why some way why? why? Yeah. Or why, why we don't, why Jews in general, or you, don't believe in Jesus Christ as your our, Lord and Savior, that kind of thing. It's not our tradition. We have our own tradition, which is uh, very ancient and very um, ingrained, how would you say? Um, ingrained. Ingrained, yeah. ingrained. And part of it is not believing, <coughs> it's not believing in Jesus. Okay. Do you know, happen to know why we... Yeah, why we don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, do you happen to know why? Because we have a different picture of what Messiah is. Okay. We see Messiah as something um, that's going to happen in the future, and it's going to fix the world. The world's going to be the way it's supposed to be when the Messiah comes. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't happened yet, so pretty simple. <laughs> but be, but the, more, the stronger answer is that it's just not in our tradition. Here we see the modern mindset of the average Jew in Israel. That thinking has not changed much from the time during which Jesus lived. Last week we watched as the hostility from the Jewish elites heated up against Jesus, particularly amongst the Pharisees and the scribes. In our text today, we'll see that this hostility continues to grow as Jesus is watched and observed for the dubious company that he keeps, and also for his lax attitude towards tradition. Last week we left off with Jesus' call to Matthew to follow him as his disciples. And this, of course, is the only place that Matthew records himself in his book. Fortunately, the other synoptic writers, Mark and Luke, record Matthew's life as being a tax collector. But they used the name Levi, as I explained last week. So Jesus calls Matthew or Levi to follow him while he was at work. And this all took place in Jesus' hometown of Capernaum. As he's passing by Matthew, 
who's collecting the taxes from the caravans that travel along the coastal highway from Damascus to Egypt or Egypt to Damascus. They stop at a toll booth and they pay the tax man. This required that Matthew would know the lingua franca, that is Greek, the language of the day, and this would serve him well in writing his gospel in Greek as, as we know it is. Now, it's not stated in our text, but Luke reveals to us that Matthew, upon following Jesus, hosts a meal in his home. This dinner, served by a tax collector to his fellow Israelites, who happen to also be tax collectors and sinners. Matthew is seen by the scribes and the Pharisees as being nothing more than a lackey of Herod, a tool of Rome, who is only out for money. Now, as a tax collector, Matthew lived with the reputation of being a corrupt money grubber, and the Jews thought of him as being lowest of low in Israel. So it's noteworthy that Jesus gives no concern to his position or reputation within the wider society. Matthew is simply a man in the community who needs to trust and follow him. And after he does so, Matthew invites the Lord to his home for a meal. Jesus accepts the invitation. This would be a great opportunity for him to literally rub elbows with the Jewish deplorables. Please turn with me, and with that as our introduction to Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. If you need to use the Pew Bible, the text can be found on page 965. As you know, we've been in Matthew for a few months now, and as we look forward to completing it at some time in the future, I see about another year or so in it. Well, we'll see what happens. This book was written by a Jew to his fellow Jews, who had rejected the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. So one of Matthew's main purposes in writing his gospel is to demonstrate that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophesied Messiah in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills those promises in his teaching ministry and also by the performing of miracles. Jesus shows, without a doubt, that he is the power and authority of deity. Recently, we reviewed that power and authority of Christ as he did miracles, defeating disease, demons, and death. With these awesome acts of power, he presents his credentials of his kingship to the people of Israel. The Jews, as we heard in our introduction video, were not expecting the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. So once again, we examine another act of power. This one concerns his power over traditions. We begin in verse 10. Matthew says, Then it happened, that as Jesus was reclining at the temple in the house, that is of Matthew or Levi, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came in and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Again, it is Luke who reveals to us that this meal takes place in Matthew's house, not Matthew himself. Apparently, Matthew had no hesitation to host an evangelistic meal. He invited all his friends. He decides that he needs to reach out to those who are tax collectors and sinners. 
after Matthew answered the call of Jesus to follow him, the first thing he does is he goes fishing. Fishing for men. Matthew had to think a lot about how to put on such a dinner. I never have to do that because I have Sue's help. But he invites all of his friends, he invites them, and they are his closest friends and co-workers. He asks these tax collectors and sinners who were rejected by the common society in Capernaum to come and meet and greet Jesus. Now, some might have mistaken this as a party for Democrats, but it wasn't. It was for tax collectors and sinners. That was a joke. With this assembly of spiritual rejects, it might have been a collection of uh, Democrats. I read someone, somewhere that one of his guests had just penned a new scroll that was entitled, What Happened?, The traditions concerning dining are what are at hand here in this first illustration that we see in the opening segment of this meal. The traditions concerning dining. These will be the concern of the Pharisees and the scribes. Again, Matthew has invited Jesus to be his guest of honor. And he's called upon them to share this meal with a collection of misfits. One question people often ask about this text is, who are these sinners? We know who the tax collectors are, but who are these sinners? Now, most scholars will say that it is all of the non-observant Jews that were friends of Matthew. You know, I've gotten to know a few Mormons in my lifetime, and many of them did not participate in the Mormon religion. They didn't go to temple, and they were called the Jack Mormons. Uh, maybe these are Jack Jews, I don't know, but they're, they're not participating in the life of Israel, going to temple and offering sacrifices. So these are notorious people within the larger society. You have tax collectors, and then you have these other people ostracized for their lack of practice. The objection that's raised here by the Pharisees in this text is that Jesus, as a teacher, as a rabbi, as a master leading disciples, would eat a meal with such riffraff. They believed for him to do so would be a way of defiling himself. So no pious Jew, no teacher in Israel, no scribe or Pharisee would ever sit down to a meal with such a crowd. I wonder what the disciples were thinking at this time. Coming into this house and sitting down with tax collectors and sinners, I wonder what they were thinking. Maybe they were thinking, what are the Pharisees thinking as they watch us? We read in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, that is to Jesus, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he breaking the rules about who you can eat with? Doesn't he know that he's going to be defiled? Now, this seems a bit odd to us today. But in the ancient world, anyone could go to a dinner party. They could show up and stand around the outside walls of the home where the party was held at. Or they could look in through the windows. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? But that's the way that it was. They were permitted to watch as uninvited guests sort of peeping times, if you will, and just watching what was happening. And here the Pharisees and other people are watching this dinner party as it takes place. We learn that these uninvited guests even participated in the table talk. These religious snobs on the, 
We're on the outside looking in and just hoping to catch Jesus violate some of their religious rules. Truth is, just by accepting Matthew's invitation, he had become ceremonially defiled. But Jesus compounds his mistake, at least in the eyes of the Pharisees, by eating with those of a lesser social status than himself. No sinner or tax collector would have ever been welcomed into the home of a Pharisee or a scribe, or a righteous man for that matter. I don't think the twelve had an answer for this question that is posed to them about the Lord's behavior by the Pharisees. Surely they must have been thinking something like, the Lord has lost his mind. But Jesus had no such misgivings. He demonstrated his unconditional acceptance of all people, even tax collectors at a meal. Jesus knew everyone gets hungry, so he sat down with to eat with them, showing his compassion for them. You'll recall that Jesus had just previously on the other side of the lake fed four or 5,000 people. He had no problem feeding them or sitting with them and eating. It's interesting to note that this question, however, is directed to the disciples of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. Jesus was present, so why not just go directly ask him, shout it out, You know, people do this to me as a pastor. Maybe Kevin's experienced this. You know, they'll go to my wife and ask her a question that they really want to direct at me. It's sort of like an end run or a power play. People enlist the help of others in order to get what they want to accomplish their purpose. And in this case, it was to besmirch the reputation of Jesus. The Pharisees' question about Jesus' behavior really had little to do with the disciples, for they did not make the decision to go to the dinner. And notice the sarcasm that is dripping in the question that they ask. What is your teacher doing? This insinuates that no pious teacher, no one in their right mind, would ever associate with these deplorables. Why is your teacher eating with these people? They're not really looking for an explanation. They're making an accusation. Jewish tradition held that any contact with a non-observant Jew or a Gentile would make one unclean. You'd have to go ritually bathe in a mikvah. So the Pharisees are really trying to dirty up Jesus, if you will, here, by associating him with the riffraff. This is guilt by association. They're saying, in a sense, that no true teacher of God would ever eat with such people. But the truth is, our Lord was more than happy to eat with them, just as we'll be more than happy to eat with GraceWorks people today, right? (laughs) Jesus identified himself, if you will, with the deplorables of the Jewish society. He came to seek and to save the lost. The negative reaction of the Pharisees here, however, was quite predictable. Jesus knew that they would object to his behavior and that they would think that he was breaking the law, the oral traditions, whatever they might be. So the full essence of Phariseeism was what was at hand. The law, the traditions taught that they are to separate themselves from the unclean. Ironically, their charge against Jesus was completely true. Jesus did eat with sinners. 
But then if he hadn't eaten with the tax collectors and the sinners and had sat down at a meal with the Pharisees, the same would have been quite as true, would it not? So the Lord always ate with sinners because he would never eat alone. But these hypocrites would have never been happy no matter what answer Jesus gave to them for his dining with these people. Do you remember when John the Baptist was preaching in the desert? He's an ascetic, and you'll recall that he only ate locust and wild honey. These same religious elites, these Pharisees and scribes, rejected John because he took his religion too far. Now they reject Jesus for going in the opposite direction, and they will call him a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So you couldn't make these elites happy in any way, shape, or form. Oftentimes, religious conservatism in our age has put on this same ugly, self-righteous face. We should do everything we possibly can to avoid pharisaicalism in our own lives. Now in verse 12, we see the rebuke of Jesus given to the scribes and the Pharisees. We read, Jesus heard this and he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, this kind of ties into our message last week. It says here that when Jesus heard this, he answers them with this uh, well-known saying of the day. Last week, you'll recall that we asked the question whether Jesus could read the minds of people. I stated then that Jesus probably overheard what the Pharisees were saying, or he simply knew by experience what their attitudes would be. Here we have it sort of confirmed for us that he was hearing what they were saying, and he is responding to it. Now, Jesus shares a proverbial saying here to make his point. This was a common saying of the day. In fact, if you go look back at some of the secular Greek works that are still in extant today, you will find this saying in it. It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. And they, of course, just don't get the point of the saying. Um, It's just similar to the way that Hillary doesn't get why she lost to Donald. She wants to blame everybody else for her loss, just as the Pharisees want to blame everybody else for their failings. Jesus uses a simple analogy here to reflect the cultural assumptions of the day are wrong. The Pharisees did not see this, however. They would rather blame the person with the disease rather than seeing it as something that comes with a fallen world. If you're sick then you must be in personal sin, as we reflected on with Job last week, rather than it's the consequence of living in a fallen world. Jesus says, I came seeking the sick. That would be all people, right? But the sick must understand that before they can receive help from the doctor, they must receive the doctor and his advice. The Pharisees reject it outright that they had an illness, that they had a sickness. They weren't sick. They didn't need a doctor. There was nothing wrong in their spiritual lives. I know some Christians who are like that. They don't think that they're still personal sinners, that they don't need a continual redemption in their lives on a daily basis. 
They were not open to receiving the healing that Jesus was offering them of their sin sickness. They did need a doctor. That's what's reflected by this saying of Jesus. Notice in verse 13 that the Lord gives them this advice. But go and learn what this means. And then he makes a quote from the Old Testament. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is also. This is awesome. This is like Jesus taking his right hand and giving them a, a, a jab in the jaw. It's, it's turning around one of their own sayings and using it against them. Go and learn. This had to really sting them, for this is exactly what the Pharisees, the teachers, would tell the uninitiated, the, 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 the massive people, to go look it up in one of the Torahs if they wanted an answer to a question. And yet they themselves failed at their own fiduciary responsibility of knowing the spirit of the law. They might have known the letter of the law, but Jesus is actually holding them accountable for a lack of knowledge of the spirit of the law. He shows them their ignorance of it by pointing directly to Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. When he quotes this, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. His critique, then, is focusing on the fact that they are rigid in their understanding of the Old Testament, and they're not flexible enough to see the Spirit's meaning behind it. And that's why they lived a life of meaningless rituals. That's why how you ate, how you washed your hands, how much you carried was important to such people. Now, Hosea came and confronted this attitude in Israel. He confronted them, and Jesus is using that confrontation in an ancient time and applying it to the Pharisees and the scribes of the current day. Now, the term used here, righteous, is uh, used sarcastically. Jesus is really saying the self-righteous. I say that because the psalmist tells us in chapter 14, verse 6, that there is none righteous no, not one. There is none who does good. No, not one. And the Pharisees failed to grasp that truth. They thought they were good. And that if Jesus claimed to be a good teacher, how could he accept an invitation to the home of Matthew and sit down as a righteous man and eat with a bunch of sinners? Jesus reverses the standard of the Pharisees by dining with the deplorables rather than the Pharisees. And he quotes Hosea to drive home this point and shame them for their attitudes. You see, they weren't really the experts in the law that they thought they were. They had missed the whole point of Hosea in the Old Testament. They preferred to sacrifice rather than show compassion. In the end, their religious activity was nothing more than meaningless and empty motions. There are people in the church like that today, are there not? They're self-righteous. They will invest a lot in cell phones. They will invest a lot of emotion in their self-righteous positions. 
won't they? For example, does it really matter whether we pass the offering in front of you during special music or we put a box on the back of the wall to collect the monies to support the church? Does it really matter whether or not we take communion by placing it at the back of the church or do we have to pass the cup in the, in the uh, little square block thing that tastes like a rock um, or not? Do those methodologies really matter? Or does the act itself matter? The sincerity of the act matter? The truth is, we like doing things our way, don't we? Things that we're comfortable with. It's always been done that way, Pastor. The truth is, we like doing things the way that we're used to. But Jesus came seeking to save the lost. And sometimes you have to get out of your comfort zone and do things differently. For example, in this same book, we read of the Great Commission. And Jesus' command is to his disciples to be his witnesses, to go to the ends of the earth. But here we have a discussion of how the offering is taken, not about how the offering is taken or how the communion is being served, but about how to eat dinner. And in a minute we will see how that we are to fast. So oftentimes we forget the most important premises of Scripture, that we be witnesses, and we cloud that over with activities that are near and dear to our heart. Once a woman said to her new pastor, enthusiastic woman, she wanted the church to have all its ducks in the row now that they had their new pastor. And she said to him, Pastor, are we going to have a visitation program for our church? The pastor assured her that there would be one. And in fact, it would be one of the best visitations in the world. Really? She said, yes, we do. And by the way, you're in it. Not really hearing his answer, the enthusiastic lady handed the pastor a list of names that she wanted the pastor to go visit as soon as possible. Well, he handed the list right back to her. And he said that it was now her assignment as a member of the new visitation program to go see these people. And then he explained. He said that you already know them, you've already cared care for them, and now you can go and minister to them more effectively than I can ever do. So, in doing so, she would heed the words of the great physician and fulfill the great command. She could do this as well as he could, maybe even better. Now, Jesus wasn't blind to the faults of these tax collectors and these sinners with whom he died, dined. He, out of his love and mercy and compassion, had chosen to eat with them despite the negativity and the comments of the Pharisees who would judge him. He did this because he knew there was a possibility that some of them might place their faith and trust in him as the Messiah. Now that brings us to the second issue of tradition found in the uh, in, beginning in verse 14. And it begins with the inquiry by the self-righteous Pharisees of Jesus' practice of fasting. Now, maybe you have a question of fasting. Do Christians need to fast today? Should you fast or shouldn't we fast? Do we have a tradition of it? Should I honor that tradition? Well, the Pharisees were confused about the issue of fasting, and so were the 
the uh, disciples of John who were also there watching with them all this that was taking place. And in verse 14 we read, Then the disciples of John came to him, it's capital H, so it's Jesus, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? I assume that the disciples of John were probably prompted by the Pharisees to go ask this question since they didn't ask their first question directly to Jesus. Now they use them as their go-between. Uh, and at this time, as, as you might know, John was in the huskow of Herod and Antipas awaiting his execution that would eventually happen. So his followers, instead of waiting outside the prison in uh, what is now modern Jordan, had gone to be with Jesus and to follow him. But, but John's disciples and the Pharisees both had this tradition based upon the Mishnah uh, of fasting. So that's what's under question, this tradition of fasting. It's worth noting that several members of the Twelve, the disciples of Jesus, uh, Philip and Andrew in particular, were also originally members of John the Baptist's disciples. So anyway, the Pharisees and the disciples of John, uninvited to this meal, observing what was happening, seeing that Jesus is drinking and having a meal, and as they watch, they ask the twelve this question. Why are you doing it differently than our traditions? That's the question. Now, as I've shared previously, the Pharisees always want to go above and beyond the requirements of the law. The Torah only commanded Jews to fast on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. However, the Pharisees deciding to do things better than everyone else and beyond the expectations of the law, set aside two days of the week, every second day of the week and fifth day of the week. They did so based upon the idea that Moses went up to Mount Sinai on the second day of the week and came back down on the fifth. Totally made up, totally man-made. Fasting to them was a way to prove to, you fill in the blank, their righteousness, their commitment to God. Now, the truth is about fasting, Jesus never comments, nor teaches, nor directs, nor commands what is normative for fasting for the church. I don't think Jesus either condemned nor uh, uh, approved of fasting in any special way. This left his own disciples wondering what his position would be. We see the objection of the Pharisees uh, and John's, John's uh, disciples as being, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? If Jesus was who he said he was, he would not follow the standard practice of achieving righteousness to God, as indicated in the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Torah. Some people have have tried to return to these standards and use them as spiritual tests of the righteousness of other people. They have embraced such things as fasting. They embrace such things as the Old Testament practices when it comes to the dietary laws, and they set them up as a sort of a litmus test of righteousness. But Jesus does not. Now, we see his rebuke, of this question in verses 15 and beyond, he gives three illustrations in this rebuke. 
that drive home his point. Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 15, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Here we see in this first illustration, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees using a wedding illustration, that of a couple, a bridegroom and uh, his attendants. You'll recall that John's disciples asked Jesus and his disciples why they didn't fast. This is the answer. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. He's making this comparison. The kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. A wedding feast has a bridegroom and it has the attendance of the bridegroom as well present. Obviously, Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the king of Israel. And obviously, the attendants of the bridegroom are the representative disciples of his sitting around the table. Now, during this time of a wedding feast, no one is allowed to fast. They're supposed to enjoy themselves. They're supposed to eat the food. They're supposed to be unrestrained joy at the bridegroom and the bride coming together. This is a wedding not a funeral. Jesus knows that his funeral will be coming up in a few short weeks. And the wedding celebration with his disciples precedes that. So it was totally inappropriate for his disciples to be fasting. Messiah came to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. This should be a time of rejoicing rather than mourning. Jesus uses this analogy then to illustrate the inappropriateness of fasting while the bridegroom was present with them. He is the guest of honor. But he says there's a time coming when it will be appropriate for them to fast if they so choose to do it. Notice that he says that it is ta- after he is taken away. As we all know, Jesus is taken away by his death on the cross. It is only then that fasting will become appropriate for his disciples. Until that time, the disciples should rejoice that the bridegroom, the king, is in their presence. As for us, when the Lord Jesus returns, our joy will be made complete and we will sit down and enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb together as the first act of his kingdom being inaugurated. Feasting will be completely obsolete in the thousand-year kingdom of Christ that is to come. So the Lord, anticipating his rejection, his death by the nation of Israel, states that while the bridegroom is here, rejoice, eat, enjoy. Soon enough I will be gone and you can mourn. This illuminates in my mind, the illustration between Jesus and John's ministry. John came, as you know, as a reformer of Israel. He came preaching the fact that Israel needed to have a change of mind about the way that they are worshiping God. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. This includes their actions and their traditions as well. But Jesus didn't come to repair the old system of Judaism. His mission was completely different. He was bringing something completely new. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to lead a group out of Israel 
based not upon a traditional righteousness, but on a righteousness given by God. Now, the Pharisees misconstrued. They changed the law through the Mishnah, through the rabbi's teaching, and through the, through the uh, other writings, and um, they made those institutionalized. They made those formal. You had to obey these traditions. So Jesus, in verse 16, compares Judaism to his teaching as old and new garments. Look with me there. Jesus says, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. This is different than the wedding illustration, isn't it? This is a completely new one. This is an object lesson. Once again, we don't forget that Jesus is answering the question of John's disciples and the Pharisees about the practice of fasting. Why doesn't Jesus fast? Jesus uses this illustration of the old and new to answer that question. He's comparing Judaism to an old garment. Now, most of us men have favorite old pieces of clothing, right? Many of us have uh, sweatshirts with logos on them from uh, professional or, or college teams, and they get raggedy, and we never want to throw them out. The wife wants to, right? She'll toss them out when we're gone on vacation or a conference or something or when we're not looking. Here, Jesus compares his teaching to a new patch of unshrunk cloth. This is really the genius of Jesus in his teaching. He's announcing the end of one dispensation, the dispensation of the law, and the beginning of a new one with this awesome illustration. The old garment is being tossed and new clothing is being given, the grace of God. The principle embedded within this argument of Jesus is that the law is passing away and grace is coming. Jesus makes this point, and in doing so, he says that Judaism and Christianity are antithetical to one another. You cannot mix law and grace together. He illustrates it as a new piece of cloth being placed on an old garment. The old garment's been washed many times, and if you sew a new piece of cloth on that old garment, what will happen? The garment will tear, right? Maybe you'll recall the days long ago in your youth when you'd get holes in the knees of your pants. Remember that, guys? And mom would sew on a piece of old jean material on there. I hated it when, when, they, when they took the, those iron-on things and put it on there. Do you remember that? They always lifted at the corners. and It was horrible. I hated those things. It seems inevitable that every boy will get holes in their jeans. So the idea here is that the grace of God that comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation as a free gift, cannot be added to the works of the law. You cannot co-mix oil and water. You cannot mix alcohol and car keys. You cannot mix Sunnism with Shiites. When the grace of God the gospel of grace is added to the works of Judaistic law. All you have is a works righteousness produced. Now, the third illustration of this futility of practicing a works righteousness illustrated by fasting as a tradition is found in verse 17. 
Once again, we have the, the old and the new being contrasted, but this time it's of wineskins. Most of us have virtually no idea what's going on in this text. We are not connected to an agrarian lifestyle anymore, so we don't know what Jesus is saying. So let me help explain that to you. Jesus says in verse 17, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins will burst, and the wine pours out onto the ground, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Once again, we have an object lesson by Jesus. Here he's contrasted, contrasting Judaism with his teaching, and he uses wineskins as the object lesson. After the community, as you know, has stomped on the grapes in the grape press, the juice is ready to be drained off, and it comes out that hole, and it is collected uh, either directly into the wineskins itself or into another collection jar and um, then it is placed into the wineskins to be fermented. The people knew that they should never use old wineskins to put new wine into. Why? They knew that once the fermentation process got going with the grape juice turning to wine, that gases are given off and the old wineskins would not be able to stretch and eventually it would burst. And the wine, or the grape juice, now wine, and having fermented, would fall to the ground and be lost. So, the old wine skins had already been stretched as far as they could go. When you put new grape juice in it to ferment, the old, in the old wine skins, they burst. What a mess. What a loss. So, new wine skins were always used. Jesus uses this illustration to show the truth of what he is saying, to put Pharisaical Judaism into his new teaching about the grace of God would cause it to fail, to burst. The new wine of his teaching was too vibrant, too potent to be placed with the inflexible, rigid law of the Pharisees. His teaching demanded a new vessel. Israel would never be able to handle the truth of Jesus Christ. The religious system of Israel proved totally unresponsive to his message. But Jesus knew of a mystery that was yet hidden, the church. And that when it was time, the new wineskins of the church would hold the new wine quite quite readily and not burst. The Lord would use the church as the new wineskin to pour the new gospel of grace into. The new cloth will never work being placed on the old leather skins that contained the old fermented wine. These images of the new relationship Jesus has with mankind are being illustrated here. No longer would men be forced to drink the dredge of formal religion, but fresh groups, grapes of truth were being offered in the gospel of grace. The principle here is this. A new dispensation has come. The age of grace, the church age, the old dispensation of the law is no longer usable to accomplish the purpose of God. Jesus, as the king, knew that mixing the old and the new would never work. Unfortunately, this takes time. 
even for his disciples to understand and figure out. For example, we know that Peter fudges on this whole concept, doesn't he? In the book of Galatians, do you remember when he returns to eating with the Judaizers? He fudges on this whole thing. And that's been true throughout all of church history. Many are ignorant of this truth and choose to ignore it rather than embrace it. One of the current examples of this in modern Christendom is the Messianic movement, which tries to incorporate the laws of Judaism into modern Christianity. This is simply one more attempt to put a patch on the law. Add Jesus to the feasts. Add Jesus to the uh, dietary laws. Those are not relevant in any way to Christianity, to the new wine that is ours given by Christ. All it does is confuse people. To mix law and grace is not to fully embrace Judaism nor fully embrace Christianity. We cannot be fooled into returning to a substitution of dead works to replace an ongoing life of grace with our Lord Jesus. When we do, the skins of our faith will burst and the grace will be ruined, spilled out. So how then can we apply this teaching to our lives today? Well, I'd like to close by giving four pictures of the application of this truth to our lives. Four pictures of whom Jesus is compared to. The first is that of a great physician. As healer, Jesus came to heal our spiritual sickness. He offers sinners his grace in order to make them well. The second picture of our Lord is that as a bridegroom. He came with his grace to give us pure joy, like that experienced at a wedding. We are no longer to be burdened with the going to the temple and offering sacrifices, erecting a booth in Jerusalem for a week and living in the hot sun. We enjoy the grace of God. We enjoy the wedding feast. We enjoy all the festivities that are connected with the grace of God. The grace life is a life of of joy and happiness, not a funeral, not a time for mourning. The third picture here of his teaching on this subject is that is the new cloth. This reminds me of those who trust alone in themselves rather than in Christ alone. They attempt to patch up Christianity, to apply their goodness, their works to something that's just totally free. And finally, the last illustration is that of wineskins. He brings the fullness of the brand new wine and fills our lives with wonderfulness and savor and fullness. Judaism Judaism is a worn-out paradigm not useful any longer to us today who know Jesus Christ as Savior and the grace of God. He wasn't giving Judaism a new makeover. He was replacing it, in a sense, with a new paradigm and a new life. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for the truth that is contained within this text. Help us, Lord, to see your will for our lives. Help us to understand, Lord, that uh, you want us to come to you with joy and expectation, not the burden of traditions or doing things a certain way. We're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who made this life possible through his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's in his name that we pray and thank you. Amen.